The Apostles' Creed is actually a really concise, nice way to share your faith, um, or at least even portions of it, right? Um, I know that we've talked about some, some different creeds. The earliest creed, Pastor Bill shared what the earliest creed was. Do you guys remember? It's real simple, three words. Jesus is Lord. Yeah, somebody said it over here. Um, that's the first thing that we think that just appears to be a creed, and it's all in the Pauline letters repeatedly. Um, a second one, anybody, it's Paul, once again, another creedal statement that's in the scriptures. Anybody want to take a wild stab? Well, 1 Corinthians 3, chapter, or 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 5. In fact, why don't you turn there? Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Creeds, if you remember, the word creed means I believe. Um, And Paul, the way he lays this out, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. They're usually fairly short, easy to memorize, and basically all of the creeds have essentially the same structure, right? And this one is quite well-known and used quite often. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So it's passed on, right? He received it probably directly from the Lord and had it affirmed by the other apostles when he met with and or talked to them. And this is what he received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, Now, that's probably where the creed ends, but as you go on, it also says that then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Um, Those first three verses, verses 3 through 5, is is most definitely an early creed. And you can see the makings of the Apostles' Creed in that. You can see some of the same elements, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Um, so, so just as a reminder, the creeds aren't something that a group of guys got together and wrote sometime later on in history. It was later when it got written down, but it's actually what they were receiving from the Word. They were taking what the Bible said and condensing it down into a statement that was easy to remember that ha- carries the, the main tenets of our faith um, in a nice, easy formula, a nice, easy way to uh, remember it, a nice, easy way to share it, which is why it's a, it's a good thing for us to potentially share as well. So let's read the creed together. If you have a copy of it still from weeks gone by, if you don't, there are copies available, and you're not going to disturb me at all if you get up and go back to the... Uh, the table back by the door there. Do we have, oh, and we have it on the screens as well. How convenient. So let's read it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I know Pastor Rick pointed this out, but if you, this is your first time with us on a Wednesday night recently, um, where it says Holy Catholic Church, that's universal church. It's not speaking of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, so the word Catholic just means universal. Did I say that the first time through that? I said something different, I think. Anyway. Um, oh, it was in the Nicene Creed that he was pointing out that Jesus didn't go to the lake of fire, hell, that he went to Gehenna, the abode of the dead, or vice versa. Went to the abode of the dead, not in this creed. Um, so the story thus far... This is where we're kind of at in that. Tonight we're going to be looking at the cross, essentially, the death burial, death and burial. Um, crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus. So here's the story thus far, and this is according to Michael Bird. He wrote a really good book on what Christians ought to believe, and it, it's focused a lot on the Apostles' Creed. He puts it this way. He says, We believe that the God who made the world sent his Son into the world, the name of his son is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary. This Jesus shares fully in the Father's divinity and completely in our humanity. That statement right there, you see the Nicene Creed influencing what he's saying, right? That he's fully man, fully God. A divinity same in substance to the Father, coupled with a humanity that is identical to our own. He is appointed as Israel's Messiah and the Lord of the whole world. He comes to the world, not on a fiery chariot accompanied with apocalyptic portents, nor cloud surfing with an entourage of angels. That may be what it looks like the second time he comes on a war horse, right? But not the first time. Rather, he comes to us in humility through the vessel of a young Jewish girl. He comes as flesh to our flesh, as bone to our bone, to be God with us and God for us. When we profess that we believe in Jesus Christ, this is the one upon whom we set our hope. This is what we've affirmed to this point in our study. I'll share a quick story here about um, from Charles Swindoll, who's a fabulous pastor, was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for a number of years. He tells a story when he was in the Marines that he and, he and his division that he was in were stationed in Okinawa, and they were sent to visit a leper colony on the north end of the island. Now, you may have heard this story before. That's okay. It's short. Um, while he was there, he, great, he greeted people who had sequestered themselves, both for their own good and for the safety and the good of the community, so that they wouldn't spread their leprosy, right? These were men and women whose bodies had been horribly, horribly disfigured but by what doctors now call Hansen's disease. And as Swindoll tells the story, he says he desperately wanted to look away. He couldn't bear to look at their suffering, to see their suffering that up close. Uh, it was more than he could handle. But at the same time, he couldn't look away. Because to do so would diminish their humanity, would diminish their worth in their own eyes. And he would be treating them as inferior. So instead of looking away, he looked all the more. He took it all in. The horror, the pain, and the suffering. And he says, I'm glad I didn't look away. As difficult as those images were to look upon, the people living in seclusion and obscurity on the north end of a tiny South Pacific island changed my life. Sometimes the most horrific images can become the catalyst 
for our most significant life changes, but only if we resist the urge to look away. How many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ? The majority. How hard was it not to look away at times? Perhaps you did look away, and that's okay. It's pretty brutal, right? Pretty brutal visual description of what Jesus went through, what he suffered. Um, If you've not watched it, I, I would recommend watching The Passion of the Christ. Even as brutal and as grotesque as the scenes are, it really fails to live up to what Isaiah tells us about Jesus' suffering. Um, Because of one sentence that's in Isaiah. Isaiah 52, you're welcome to turn there if you'd like. I'm going to read through Isaiah 52, 13, um, all the way through chapter 53, verse 12. This is the... There's four sections in Isaiah that are known as the the servant songs or the suffering servant. This is the final one, the fourth one, probably the most famous one. You guys will recognize a lot of the verses in it. We sing songs directly out of these verses. Um, And we're not going to exposit these because Pastor Bill will be doing this on Sunday, the first Sunday in September. He'll be going through this. We're going to, starting next, this coming Sunday, I'll, I'll do the first servant song, and then uh, Pastor Garrett's going to do the second one, Pastor Rob is going to do the third one, and then Pastor Bill will follow up with the fourth one. Rick kicked it off for us last week out of, with, uh, in Isaiah 6. So Isaiah 52, verse, starting in verse 13. This is Yahweh speaking. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, a picture of the cross, and he shall be exalted. As many were, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, beyond human recognition. So they beat his face and the rest of his body to a point that he was unrecognizable as a human being. Now, obviously, in the Passion of the Christ, they they did not do that to the actor, thankfully, and they, they, uh, this is where they maybe fell a little bit short, even though there's plenty of, uh, you see the depravity of man in that movie for sure. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations, speaking of the sprinkling of blood, purifying. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He looked completely ordinary. In other words, there was nothing that made him stand out. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that has been led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, and he asks a question here, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? In other words, whoever thought that what he was suffering and doing was on their behalf, it was to pay for their transgression. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. These verses so obviously point to Christ that the rabbis actually took this out of, out of the Jewish Bibles um, because after the events that we know happening in the New Testament, when a Jewish person, like if Mike would have ever studied and actually looked at Isaiah 53 and then read the events of the New Testament of the Gospel accounts, it's, it's so clearly that this is speaking of Christ 500, 600 years before the events of the cross. Um, and you can hear the suffering in there. It's actually just a side note. People who complain or say that God couldn't possibly exist because a good, loving God wouldn't allow such pain in, in the world, in, uh, in creation, that he, he either isn't good or he doesn't exist, right? It's a lot of times the arguments of an atheist. Um, but take note that he actually enters into his creation and suffers alongside with purpose, but he suffers along with us. He's not so removed from his creation that he's not affected by what's happening. Um, so those verses and so much more is summarized in one simple sentence that we get to examine tonight. And that sentence is this. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. That's the portion we're going to look at tonight. Um, there is one single uncontested fact that comes out of the Apostles' Creed, and it's the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified in Jerusalem sometime around AD 30. Even an atheist won't generally argue with that. Uh, and part of the reason is, is a controversial name that shows up in the Creed, Pontius Pilate. It's like, why on earth would the apostles or, or the authors of the Apostles' Creed, why would they in a sense, almost honor Pontius Pilate by carrying his name through history, right? Well, it's because it puts the life of Jesus, or at least the crucifixion of Jesus, into a very narrow time frame. He only reigned for 10 years in Judea. He was the governor, the uh, proconsul, whatever you want to call him, for 10 years, from 26 AD to 36 AD. So the crucifixion had to happen in that time frame. So what they've done in the brilliance of the Apostles' Creed is they've actually said, they, with that, just that name being there, they've said this is a real event that happened in a real place at a real point in history. Indisputable. Um, another side note, I love that this baffles me. AD, right, stands for Anno Domini, which means in the year of the Lord. Of course, we want to 
we, not we, but our culture, the world, wants to change the way we do our dating system, right? So now they do uh, before the Common Era, uh, which is BCE, and uh, CE, which means Common Era, which, which is the time frame from Jesus' birth till now, just like A.D., Ado Domini, in the year of the Lord, because it's when he was born is how we measure time, right? It's how we measure the years. So they didn't change any of that. We still use the same point of reference. They just don't acknowledge the point of reference, but um, anyway... Uh, so he was executed under the order of Pontius Pilate, under pressure from the high priest and the Jewish leadership. Um, that Jesus was crucified, died, and buried is the one line in the creed that even a staunch atheist would likely agree with. And that's because Pontius Pilate shows up in the creed. The historical value. How do most myths or legends start out? What's the opening lines? Once upon a time. Yeah, thanks, Carrie. Or... Far, far away, and a gal- oh, how does that go? A uh, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, right? More modern myths that we get entertained by. How does our story begin? Not the Apostles' Creed. I know Pastor Rick took you there. Genesis, right? In the beginning. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. Right? If you believe that line, there should be nothing in the rest of Scripture that would shock you or baffle you or seem undoable, right? I mean, people get weirded out by Jonah and the big fish. It's like, or, yeah, big fish. Um, it's like, why? If God spoke the world into existence and if by his thought process things continue to exist, what does he got to do to change any of it? Or to make something happen that he wants to have happen, right? Speak it again. Um, speak into the creation. He speaks into the creation all the time. He's actively involved in his creation. So, so if you buy into the first line in the Bible, the rest of it follows that opening statement. Um, he just explains a whole lot of how he does things throughout the rest of the Bible and leaves a lot of mysteries for us as well. Um, okay, let's get into the text about Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial, or at least one account of it. We're going to be in Matthew, and uh, we'll start in chapter 26. I'm going to, I'm going to skip over. These, are really, these verses that we're going to look at tonight are probably, they should be really familiar to you. We look at them every Easter or Good Friday time as we're coming through the Passion Week. Um, so most of you, they're going to be very, very familiar verses. Um, and I'm only going to hit the parts that are directly about Jesus' death, crucifixion, and, and the things leading up to that. And if time permits, I want to read a little excerpt out of uh, The Case for Christ. Um, we'll see. Might not have time. If you wanted to outline the section we're going to look at, it would go something like this. Uh, first thing we're going to see in verses chapter 26, verses 53 to 68, is a major power play, or so they thought. The real power play is God working through human agents to accomplish his will and his way. Um, so a major power play. Uh, secondly would be public shaming, chapter 27, verses 11 to 31. But there's also an incredible honoring that happens here. We, we, I hinted at it or we, we read about it in Isaiah that he took on the sins of the transgressors for their benefit. 
Um, so there's this incredible honoring that goes on, happens with Barabbas as he gets released, right? Which is just, it's a picture of us, our captivity and sin and the release that Christ brings us. Um, third section would be ultimate physical torture and ultimately death. Chapter 27, verses 32 to 40, 44. Uh, emotional humiliation, verses 45 through 50 of chapter 27. Um, and those two together actually an ultimate brutality that leads to the ultimate beauty. And then a further fulfillment of Scripture, verses 57 to 61, um, speaking particularly of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. Um, as he was crucified and died with the wicked, the two thieves, and yet he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, as we'll read. And then self-incrimination, and I'll point out a verse when we get there in, in uh, verses 62 to 66. The, uh, the, the leadership, the Jewish leadership, actually incriminates themselves in one of the things that they say, which is interesting. Um, so, chapter 26, starting in verse 53. Tiny bit of background. Jesus is with his disciples. Um, they've, they've had the Last Supper. They've gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has now shown up with the soldiers to, to betray Jesus, to turn him over to them. And uh, Peter's already whacked off uh, the ear of, of uh, the, the priest's helper, whose name is escaping me. Not a big deal, but Malchus, thank you. Um, and he's telling Peter, he tells Peter, put away your sword. Those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. And he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will not at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? You remember how much damage one angel did every time they showed up in the Old Testament? I mean, they wiped out 185,000 um, Assyrians at one point. And I mean, so one angel, well, he wouldn't even eat. Half an angel could have taken care of the small crowd that came out to to arrest Jesus, right? Um, and he's saying, the, the Father can send legions if I asked him. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Uh, the scriptures we just read about in Isaiah, or just read in Isaiah, are some of those scriptures that are fulfilled and what's the things, events that are about to happen, right? As well as so many others in the Old Testament. But at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. They're looking for somebody to lie in such a way that they can find fault and put him to death. But they found none, though many witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? Remember what it said in Isaiah that he would be like a sheep led to the slaughter, that he'd be quiet, he wouldn't speak a word. Or at least he wouldn't cry out in his defense. What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I assure you, 
by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now he's, I adjure you, he's saying, under oath to God Almighty, under oath to Yahweh, you must answer this. He's, he's putting Jesus in a difficult position, and he answers, right? He says, you've said it so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. This title, Son of Man, and the description he's given here comes right out of Daniel 7, when basically the keys to, the, to all of creation are handed to the Messiah, which is obviously Jesus. Um, they knew the Old Testament so well that they knew exactly what he was referring to. And that's why they say, blasphemy, you know, crucify him at this point, or take him away. We don't, what else do we need to hear? Uh, then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him. Public humiliation going on here, or humiliation amongst their, uh, the leadership. Saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Um, I want to drop down to chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests... And the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. The part I skipped over is Peter's denial. Um, it doesn't fit in the context of what we're talking about tonight, okay? Um, and they bound him, verse 2, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And then there, it talks about Judas going out and returning the money and, and ended up hanging himself. Drop down to verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, this is Pontius Pilate, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he is, was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. So they're, so they're crying out in the background, accusing him of blasphemy and different things, and he's not answering them at all. He's having a conversation with Pontius, but he's paying no attention to the chief priests, giving no answer for their accusations. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now Luke throws in at this point that, he, that Pontius Pilate came to find out that Jesus was from Nazareth, so he sends him to Herod because he actually would fall under his jurisdiction. And if you recall, Jesus won't perform parlor tricks for Herod, he ends up sending him back. Um, and then in verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, this guy was a murderer. And so Pontius is thinking, surely they're not going to want him. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ, who is called Messiah? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said, Let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. You should know that Pontius Pilate was, was not a kind man. Uh, apparently, he had some sense of justice. He also was superstitious, and the dream that his wife had was bothering him, was influencing his uh, decisions right here. But he was not known as a kind man. He was, he was brutal, um, as were most of the Roman soldiers that were under his care there. 
Um, this is part of the reason that the Jewish leadership had some influence over him because he was, he had, he was very heavy handed and he had stamped out or stomped out a rebellion that was happening. So that's a good thing, right? I mean, if you're the leader of an, 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 uh, an invading force or an occupying force, you should stamp out rebellions that crop up. But he was so brutal in the way that he did it that the Jewish leadership complained back to Caesar, back to Rome. And so Pontius was on thin ice with the Roman government, and now, um, because he was so brutal, and now with the Jewish leadership, they're forcing him into this situation. They say, he's claiming to be a king, and anyone who claims to be a king is no friend of Caesar's. If you don't agree with us, you're no friend of Caesar's, essentially is what they're saying. We're going to call, we're going to tell Caesar what you're doing. So he gets forced into the situation. Um, now, he still could have let Jesus go, but, but that also would not have fulfilled Scripture. So. Um, so in Pilate, verse 24, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. You see to it yourselves. Now, they could not see to it themselves. He had to participate through his soldiers. Pilate did. But, but he is saying, I am not taking any responsibility for this. It's on you. His blood is on you. And they say, yes, let his blood be on us, not knowing what they're saying. Um, and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This was the, the beginnings of uh, the ultimate physical torture and ultimately the death. I don't know if we have time to do this or not, but we're going to. So, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, with uh, Lee Strobel and his book, The Case for Christ. If you've not read it, you should. Um, uh, he was a, he's, a, he's a skeptic who set out to disprove his wife's faith in Christ. There's also a pretty good movie about it. Um, the book's better than the movie, but the movie was pretty darn good too. So, so he goes uh, to a doctor actually to find out did Jesus really die on the cross? I mean, how bad can crucifixion be, right? Well, let me put it this way just to understand how brutal crucifixion is. Um, many historians described it as the most depraved way that any person could die. Um, they described the people, that, that uh, just the darkness of the people who participated, who, who participated in the scourgings, um, the uh, the sadistic behavior that would come out in these soldiers when they were doing this. And the Passion of the Christ actually does a pretty good job of just depicting that, just showing how evil these men were who would have carried out such sentences. Um, and then moving on into the crucifixion, uh, a humiliating way to die. Anybody who ever witnessed one would never forget it. It would be like if you went and witnessed an electric chair execution in our day and age. Um, and I don't know if you've ever seen one. I've, I've not seen a live one. I have seen on TV. I've seen what I'm pretty sure was a depiction of, but it was done as a documentary. It actually was probably anti-corporal punishment, which I'm actually personally in favor of in the right situations and the right cases and doing it humanely. But, um, but it, was, it was very difficult to watch and not something that I've forgotten since having seen it. I remember the images. Um, brutal. And you notice that we don't make jewelry of a little executioner's chair, right? You don't wear a little electric chair around your neck 
You don't wear a firing squad around your neck. You don't wear a syringe around your neck. Um, a more proper, maybe a more proper way to, to euthanize people, um, to administer corporal punishment. But again, just thinking of the, the beauty that comes out of the cross, that's why Christians have made something that in that day and age would have been... The Romans, it's a stumbling block to the Romans, right? And foolishness to, uh, or maybe I've got it backwards, foolishness to the Gentiles. It was a stumbling block to the Romans because they're, 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 why would you worship somebody that we crucified? We killed him in the most humiliating way possible, and now you worship him. You're, you are insane. This is what the Romans thought of Christians um, and why they persecuted them. Uh, and for Jewish mind, or for Gentile mindsets, uh, same thing, the foolishness of worshiping someone who, who apparently had no power. What power is there in weakness? Um, so I'm running out of more time. I may be an hour and 20 minutes like Pastor Rick, so we'll try not to be. Uh, but I think this description is worth the time here. So Lee Strobel has gone to visit this Dr. Alexander Metherall. They're sitting in a plush setting. He says it was starkly incongruous with the subject we were discussing. There we were, sitting in the living room of Methyl's comfortable California home on a balmy spring evening, warm ocean breezes whispering through the windows, while we were talking about a topic of unimaginable brutality, a beating so barbarous that it shocks the conscience, and a form of capital punishment so depraved that it stands as wretched testimony to man's inhumanity to man. I had sought out Methro because I heard he possessed the medical and scientific credentials to explain the crucifixion. But I also had another motivation. I had been told he could discuss the topic dispassionately as well as accurately. That was important to me because I wanted to face, or I wanted the facts to speak for themselves without the hyperbola or charged language that might otherwise manipulate emotions. As you would expect from someone with a medical degree and a doctorate in engineering, Methrolt speaks with scientific precision. He is board certified in diagnosis of the American Board of Radiology and has been a consultant to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Pressure uh, Blood Institute of the National Institutes of Health of Bethesda, Maryland. A former research scientist, he goes on and, and talks about his credentials and, and what he knew. He's, he's an expert in this area. Uh, initially, I wanted to elicit from Methrell a basic description of the events leading up to Jesus' death. So after a time of social chat, I put down my iced tea and shifted in my chair to face him quietly, or face him squarely. Could you paint a picture of what happened to, to Jesus, I asked. Well, he cleared his throat. He, says that he said, it began after the Last Supper. Jesus went with his disciples to the Mount of Olives, specifically to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, if you remember, he prayed all night. Now, during the process, he was anticipating the coming events of the next day, since he knew the amount of suffering he was going to have to endure. He was quite naturally experiencing a great deal of psychological stress. I raised my hand to stop him. I said, whoa, now here's where skeptics have a field day, I told him. The gospel, or the gospels, tell us that he began to sweat blood at this point. Now, come on, how does anybody sweat blood? Isn't this the product of some overactive imagination? Doesn't that call into question the accuracy of the gospel writers? Unfazed, Methrel shook his head. He said, not at all. This is a known medical condition called hematidrosis. It's not very common, but it is associated with a high degree of psychological stress. What happens is that severe anxiety causes the release of chemicals that break down the capillaries in the sweat glands. 
And as a result, there's a small amount of bleeding into these glands, and the sweat comes out tinged with blood. We're not talking about a lot of blood, uh, but it's just a very, very small amount. Though a bit chastised, Strobel says, I pressed on. Did this have any other effects on the body? What this did was set up the skin to be extremely fragile so that when Jesus was flogged by the Roman soldier the next day, his skin would be very, very sensitive. Well, I thought, here we go. I braced myself for the grim images I knew were about to flood my mind. I had seen plenty of dead bodies as as a journalist. Car accidents, fires, crime syndicate, retribution. But there there was something especially unnerving in hearing about someone being intentionally brutalized by executioners, determined to extract maximum suffering. Tell me, I said, what was the flogging like? Methril's eyes never left me. Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. They usually consisted of 39 lashes, but frequently were a lot more than that, depending on the mood of the soldier applying the blows. The soldiers would use a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them. When the whip would strike the flesh, these balls would cause deep bruises or contusions, which would break open with further blows. And the whip had pieces of sharp bones as well, which would cut the flesh severely. The back would be so shredded that part of the spine was sometimes exposed by the deep, deep cuts. The whipping would have gone all the way from the soldier, from the shoulders down the back to the buttocks and the back of the legs. It was just terrible. Methro paused. Go on, I said. One physician who has studied Roman beatings said, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. A third century historian by the name of Eusebius described a flogging by saying, the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. We know that many people would die from this kind of beating even before they could be crucified. At the least, the victim would experience tremendous pain and go into a hypovolemic shock. Mithril had thrown in a medical term I didn't know, so I asked what it meant. Hypo means low, vol means, refers to volume, and epic, emic means a blood. So hypovolemic shock means the person is suffering the effects of losing a large amount of blood. This does four things. First, the heart races to try to pump blood that isn't there. Second, the blood pressure drops, causing fainting or collapse. Third, the kidneys stop producing urine to maintain what volume is left. And fourth, the person becomes very thirsty as the body craves fluid to replace the lost blood volume. Strobel asks, do you see evidence of this in the gospel accounts? He responds, yes, most definitely. Jesus was in in hypovolemic shock as he staggered up the road to the execution site at Calvary, carrying the horizontal beam of the cross. Finally, Jesus collapsed, and the Roman soldier ordered Simon to carry the cross for him. Later, we read that Jesus said, I thirst, at which point a sip of vinegar was offered to him. Because of the terrible effects of this beating, there's no question that Jesus was already in serious to critical condition, even before the nails were driven through his hands and feet. As distasteful as the description of the flogging was, I knew that even more repugnant testimony was yet to come. That's because historians are unanimous that Jesus survived the beating that day and went on to the cross, which is where the real issue lies. These days, when condemned criminals are strapped down and injected with poisons or secured to a wooden chair and subjected to a surge of electricity, the circumstances are highly controlled. Death comes quickly and predictably. Medical examiners 
carefully certify the victim's passing. From close proximity, witnesses scrutinize everything from beginning to end. But how certain was death by this crude, slow, and rather inexact form of execution called crucifixion? In fact, most people aren't sure how the cross kills its victims. And without a trained medical examiner to officially attest that Jesus had died, might, might he have escaped the experience, uh, brutalized and bleeding, but nevertheless alive? I began to unpack these issues. What happened when he arrived at the site of the crucifixion, I asked. Well, he would have been laid down. His hands would have been nailed in an outstretched position to the horizontal beam. This crossbar was called the patibulum. And at this stage, it was separate from the vertical beam, which was permanently set in the ground. I was having difficulty visualizing this. I needed more details. Nailed with what, I asked. Nailed where? The Romans used spikes that were five to seven inches long and tapered to a sharp point. They were driven through the wrists, right below the palm. Uh, Methel said, pointing about an inch or so below his left palm. Hold it, I interrupted. I thought the nails pierced his palms. That's what all the paintings show. In fact, it's become a standard symbol representing the crucifixion. No, through the wrists, Mithril repeated. This was a solid position that would lock the hand. If the nails had been driven through the palms, his weight would have caused the skin to tear, and he would have fallen off the cross. So the nails that went through the wrists, although this was considered part of the hand in the language of the day. And it's important to understand that the nail would go through the place where the median nerves run. This is the largest nerve going out of the hand, and it would be crushed by the nail that was being pounded in. Now, since I have only a rudimentary knowledge of the human anatomy, I wasn't sure what this meant. What, what sort of pain would that have produced, I asked. Well, let me put it this way, he replied. Do you know the kind of pain you feel when you bang your elbow, when you hit your funny bone that's not so funny? Uh, that's actually another nerve called the ulna nerve. It's extremely painful when you accidentally hit it. Well, picture taking a pair of pliers and squeezing and crushing that nerve, he said, emphasizing the word squeezing as he twisted an imaginary pair of pliers. That effect would be similar to what Jesus experienced. I winced at the image and squirmed in my chair. The pain was absolutely unbearable, he continued. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word, excruciating. Literally, excruciating means out of the cross. Think of that. They needed to create a new word because there was nothing in the language that would describe the intense anguish caused during crucifixion. At this point, Jesus was hoisted as the crossbar was attached to the vertical stake, and then nails were driven through Jesus' feet. Again, the nerves in, in his feet would have been crushed, and there would have been a similar type of pain. Crushed and severed nerves were certainly bad enough, but I needed to know about the effects of hanging from the cross, uh, what those effects would have had on Jesus. What stresses would this have put on his body, I asked. Methril answered, first of all, his arms would have immediately been stretched, probably about six inches in length, and both shoulders would have been dislocated. You can determine this with simple mathematical equations. This fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy in Psalm 22, which foretold that crucifixion hundreds of years before it took place, uh, and says, my bones are out of joint. The cause of death. Methril had made his point graphically about the pain endured as the crucifixion process began. But I needed to get what finally claims the life of a crucifixion victim, because that's the pivotal issue in determining whether death can be faked or eluded. So I put the cause of death question directly to Methril. Once a person is hanging in the vertical position, he replied, crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. 
lack of oxygen, lack of ability to breathe. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and diaphragm put the chest into an inhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale, the individual must push up on his feet so the tension on the muscle would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bone, wrist or the ankle bones. After managing to exhale, the person would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. And he'd have to push himself up to exhale, scraping his bloodied back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on and on until complete exhaustion would take over and the person wouldn't be able to push up and breathe anymore. As the person slows down his breathing, he goes into what is called respiratory acidosis. The carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to increase. This eventually leads to an irregular heartbeat. In fact, with his heart beating erratically, Jesus would have known that he was at the moment of death, which is when he was able to say, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died of cardiac arrest. This was the clearest explanation I had ever heard of death by crucifixion, but Mithra wasn't done. Even before he died, and this is important too, the hypovolemic shock would have caused a sustained rapid heart rate that would have contributed to heart failure, resulting in the collection of fluid in the membrane around the heart, called a pericardial effusion, as well as around the lungs, which is called a pleural effusion. Why is that significant? Well, because of what happened when the Roman soldier came around, and being fairly certain that Jesus was dead, confirmed it by thrusting a spear into his right side. It was probably his right side, that's not certain, but from the description, it was probably the right side between his ribs. The spear apparently went through the right lung and into the heart, so when the spear was pulled out, some fluid, the pericardial effusion and the pleural effusion came out. This would have... This would have had the appearance of a clear fluid like water, followed by a large volume of blood, as the eyewitness John described in his gospel. John probably had no idea why he saw both blood and a clear fluid come out. Certainly, that's not what an untrained person like him would have anticipated. Yet, John's description is consistent with what modern medicine would expect to have happened. At first, this would seem to give credibility to John uh, as an eyewitness. However, there seemed to be one big flaw in all this. Strobel pulls out his Bible and looking at John 19.34, he says, Wait a minute, Doc, I protested. When you carefully read what John said, he saw blood and water come out. Notice the order, blood and water. He intentionally put the words in that order. But according to you, the clear liquid would have come out first. So there's a significant discrepancy here. Methril smiled slightly. I'm not a Greek scholar, he replied. But according to people who are, the order of words in ancient Greek was determined not necessarily by sequence, but by prominence. This means that since there was a lot more blood than water, it would have made sense for John to mention the blood first. A brutal death, a brutal account. Sorry it was so long, but I just thought it was worth the time. Um, Again, if you've not read any of Strobel's books, he's got multiple books that are quite good. Um, So this is the ultimate brutality, the ultimate terrible way to die, excruciating pain, Um, a brutal scene. In the time frame, not that unlike so many other deaths that were happening. I mean, Jesus was crucified with two other convicts right next to him, right? Two thieves that 
were also on the cross. So it wasn't that unusual in their day and age. And yet still described by many historians as the most brutal way for anybody to die. And even as we read in Strobel's book, they had to come up with a new word to, to describe the pain, excruciating out of the cross. Um, so what makes Jesus' Jesus's death any different? And what gives it meaning and actually makes it, as I said earlier, beautiful? The cross is actually the beauty and the beast. It's brutality and beauty. Beautiful. Well, in our time, let me give you four. We'll try to get through all four. There are multiple ways. I don't know if you notice, but when you when you read any account in the Bible, it's like it's like looking at a at a diamond. Depending on what angle you're looking at it, there's various facets of what's going on. Right? The cross is like in the center. Think of a spider web, uh, and you start rattling the cross, and, and atonement starts rattling up this way, and it goes all the way through, all the way back to Genesis, and, and you've got uh, propitiation, and it rattles through this direction. and I mean, it's like the center of everything that's important to us. And it touches on so many aspects of the Bible that it would be, we would be here for weeks, months, we could read the whole Bible and not exhaust all of the ways that the cross touches um, the rest of Scripture. But let's talk about four, um, because we don't even have time to do that. So... Um, the first thing that's happening at the cross is that Jesus is absorbing God's, God's wrath for us, for you, for me. Absorbing God's wrath. Think back about the things I've read, both in the scripture and also uh, Strobel's description. Um, there's public shaming going on. The ultimate physical torture. Emotional humiliation. Uh, people walking by saying, you saved others, why not save yourself? Come down off the cross and then we'll believe that you're the Messiah. Right, the Jews looked at this as a curse hanging on a tree. It was the last. In fact, it's the last curse mentioned in Deuteronomy. There's no possible way that their Messiah could be hanging on a tree. Um, that's just the ultimate curse. What they didn't realize is just how depraved they were. That they weren't in God's will in the things that they were doing. Um, so emotional humiliation, spiritual death, and material death. This is the wrath of God being poured out being poured out on Jesus. And this is the biblical doctrine of propitiation, which I, I know is a big, long theological term, but it's something you should be familiar with. Propitiation means a turning away of God's wrath um, by means of a sacrifice. It's the central theme of the entire Old Testament. I mean, it's the central theme of everything that is Jewish, right? From Moses on, uh, sacrifices being made. Actually, before that, sacrifices were being made. but um, And then ultimately in Jesus and it's because God is holy and just. He has to deal with sin. He must deal with sin. He can't just overlook it. He can't let it go. He can't leave it unpunished. Your sin, my sin, it has to be dealt with. And he deals with it by sending forth his only son, the blameless one, as our sacrifice to experience all those things, the public humiliation, the ultimate, the ultimate uh, torturous death. Um, he takes the whole sin dilemma and he turns it inside out. The holy wrath of God that should have fallen on us has fallen on him in the person of Jesus Christ. He's absorbed it himself. He takes our place. He bears our burden. He carries our shame and he pays our penalty. The Apostle John in 1 John 4 says it like this. He says it like this. This is love, not that we love God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the sacrifice, to be the atonement. This is what's happening at the cross. It's where God's justice and love come together. God's justice requires payment. And then God's love provides that payment through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus substituted himself for sinners. He suffered on our behalf for our sin in order to be able to forgive us, to love us, and ultimately to embrace us. It's truly remarkable what he's done. It's amazing, unbelievable even, but it's true. So that's the first thing that's happening. God in Christ is absorbing the full wrath, his own wrath, so that we can, or so that he can reconcile us to himself. The second thing that's happening at the, at the cross is that he's reconciling humanity to himself. Through the cross, God is making a way for those who have been his enemies, those who have disregarded him, allowing a way for us to be restored to him. At the cross, Jesus is reconciling humanity to God. And the Bible makes it really clear that there's no one who's righteous, no one that's good. If you think you're good, it's because you're grading on a curve in order to make yourself feel better. Um, None of us are good or right. God doesn't grade on a curve, right? He's uh, He's got a standard that is perfection, and only his son has met that standard. Um... So God in Christ is reconciling us to himself. And if you know anything about Jesus' life, you, can, you see him do this throughout the scriptures. You see him do it with Matthew, a tax collector, despised and hated in his community, reconciled and brought into the 12, right? No, brought into the, inter, into the, the apostleship. Um, you see it in Zacchaeus, an even bigger crook than Matthew. You know, Jesus reconciles him and goes and sups with him. And, and you see this change in Zacchaeus' character. He pays back more than what he had, had taken from people. Um, that only comes from a changed heart. Uh, you see him bring people that of, of uh, low esteem, prostitutes, uh, tax collectors and sinners, right? And he brings them into the community of God. He redeems them and he says, he's saying to the rest of the community, listen, these are not outcasts. These are people who belong in the kingdom. They're people who belong in the kingdom because... They've repented and turned, and they're trusting me. So they belong in the kingdom. This is why the religious leaders called him a friend of sinners, right? Because he kept extending mercy um, to those who seemed far from God, but were actually were very close to God. Um, so Jesus reconciles us to God. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, You're not outside of his reach. And I want you to see and to sense that your sin is not beyond the power of the cross, no matter what your sin might be. It's not beyond the power of the cross. And that's what makes the cross so beautiful. Um, And this is what it has to do with our life, with your life, with my life, 2,000 years after it happened, right? I mean, we look back at these ancient texts sometimes and think, what's that have to do with me? Well, everything. The cross has everything to do with you, everything to do with me. Jesus' blood, his death upon the cross for us, he's absorbed the full wrath of God on your behalf, um, on our behalf, all of us, all of our sins, past, present, and future, so that we can be reconciled to God. That's what's happening at the cross. First, Christ is absorbing the full wrath of God. Second, he's reconciling us back to God. And third, he's creating a people all his own. You see this clearly in Acts 20, 28, um, and 
the gist there is that we belong to a community, the, the church that was purchased by his blood. The church was purchased. He bought and paid for us. The only reason we're here is because of the cross of Christ. The only reason that we would gather together as a group. I mean, there are so many... There are varied levels of, of uh, education in this room. There are varied levels of socioeconomical um, status. It's a terrible word, but you know we all come from different backgrounds, socially, economically. Um, we're from different... Perhaps some of us are from different countries. We're, uh, we're from different races. Ethnic, ethnically, we're different. Um, and yet, we're all brought together because of Christ, because of his sacrifice for us. That's what unites us. That's what unites the church worldwide. Not just, not, but it, so it is universal, right? The whole church. But it's also right here at Trail Christian Fellowship, right? Within a smaller, there's still diversity in our group. That's the kind of diversity we should embrace, right? Is that everyone can belong to Christ through repentance, through putting their faith and trust in Jesus. That's good diversity. And that's where unity comes from and prayerfully cooperation with one another. Um, turn to 2 Corinthians 5. Last verse I'll have you turn to. 2 Corinthians 5. Amazingly, 2 Corinthians comes right after 1 Corinthians. <laughs> really? Right before Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. If you get there, you've gone too far. And right after Romans. 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, other believers, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. That is the coolest thing ever. We're ambassadors for Christ. So we implore you, God making his... God making his appeal, th- appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is our message to the outside world, right? For our sake, he made him to be sin. That is Jesus, who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's an amazing thing. His mercy gives our lives incredible purpose and meaning. And then we're sent out as ambassadors. So what's happening at the cross? He's absorbing the wrath of God. He's reconciling, sinful, he's reconciling sinful humanity to himself. He's creating a new people who will share his message. And finally, he's revealing the Father's love. On the cross, Jesus fully revealed to us the love of God. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's nothing for us to do except turn and come to God. He died for us while we're sinners. He saves us while we're still sinners. John, 1 John 4, 9-10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice that turns away God's wrath for our sins. So on the cross, Jesus is revealing to us the love of God so that our heart, our affections would be drawn back to Him which will enable us to once again commune with him, to be reconciled with him. So if you're not a Christian, I don't know why you're not. You should be. <laughs> you, get, you need to turn to God. 
You need to be drawn into his community, drawn into his love. Out of his love, God created humanity, and then we rebelled against him. We messed everything up. And so in his love, he sends forth Jesus, who takes our place, dies the death that we deserved to die in order that we might have, that we might become his righteousness. As we grow into his righteousness through trusting and believing. Um, So again, if you're not a Christian yet, you need to be drawn into the love of God through Christ. You simply, it's, and it's simple, right? Repent. Repent of your sins and ask Jesus to be Lord of your life. It's like, Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me. Uh, I'm a sinner. I need your grace and I need your mercy. And I want to, I, I don't know how to do it, Lord, but I want to live for you. I want to come under your care and, and have you as Lord of my life. And then talk to somebody who's already a Christian. Tell them what you've done. Tell them the commitment you've made. Uh, and then talk to a pastor. I mean, come up and talk to me if that's happening for you right now. Come up and talk to me after the service and uh, talk about next steps, about discipleship, about how to grow, about what it means, you know, to, to continue to move forward. And then sign up for the baptism that's happening on August 20th. I mean, that's, that's the one, that's the first act of obedience that we should do after getting saved is to be baptized. Uh, now, if you're already a Christian, you simply need to dwell in God's love. Um, the love that he's revealed to us through Christ, and then fully rest in what he's done on your behalf. Rest in it. Jesus said, whoever is weary and heavy burdened, come to me from my burden. My, my yoke is light, my burden is easy, right? He wants to provide rest. So lean into what Christ has done for us. There was never any love like the dying love of Jesus. He loves us too much to leave us the way we are. Um, but he loves us enough to offer a way for us to become his righteousness. Think on this. Jesus on the cross is the tree of life. Remember in Eden, they, they disobeyed God and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, whether this is an actual tree or not, I'm not positive, but they rebelled against God and decided to do their own thing. Um, and it's presented to us as eating fruit, disobeying God by eating this fruit that he said not to. There was another tree in that same garden, right? The tree of life. And God loved Adam and Eve too much to leave them there because if they would have eaten of that tree, they would have forever been in a state of decay and in this dying nature that sin brings in us. So he's protected humanity from, from that tree of life until now because now he's paid the full price and he offers Jesus on the cross as a new tree of life. We put our faith and hope and trust in him. We're partaking of that tree of life. This is why the brutality of the cross has turned into such beauty. And it's bringing us to this last point. If I can find my last paper. The story thus far. Again, from Michael Byrd. We believe that the triune God determined in eternity past to unite himself to creation through the Son. And so it was that the Son became the man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Mary, Emmanuel, God with us. His messianic task meant that he came to Israel to announce and enact the kingdom, to usher in the new exodus, and to renew the covenant, a renewal that will even encompass the nations and bring them into the inheritance of Israel. He was rejected, he was mocked, he was killed, and yet in the cruelty of crucifixion his mission was fulfilled. Jesus took the curse of Israel's transgression upon himself, and the weight of the sins of the world fell upon him. He died under Pontius Pilate, 
as an atonement for sins so that Jews and Gentiles could know the peace of God and life everlasting. Father, thank you for that gift. We thank you for the, for the death and the burial of Jesus. And we know that the next week we get, I think it's next week, we get to look at the resurrection. So the hope of a new life that comes out of the gospel message. Father, thank you so much for what you have done to reconcile us to you, that, that we really don't have anything to do except accept the gift that you've given and then to grow into the righteousness that you're granting to us, to allow sanctification to happen in our, in our lives, to allow ourselves, ourselves to be made holy in your image. Um, so, Lord, please continue to do that in, in our lives, those of us that are here that know you and, and love you, Lord, and are, and are living in your kingdom. Help us to be good ambassadors, to take the word out, to share the message. And Father, if there is anyone here that doesn't know you, or somebody that hears it on the internet, whatever the case might be, Father, I pray that even right now you would, you would be helping them, you'd be drawing them in and helping them to make a decision to uh, surrender their lives to you, to surrender to your rescue. Uh, thank you for everything about that rescue, just how amazing it is, Lord. We love you. Thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.